I want to share with you a message this morning that is actually not a new message. It's a message that I got about three years ago. Um, you know, the way I the way I do sermons is different from the way a lot of people do sermons. I, I try to go to the Lord and ask him, what do you want me to talk about? And somehow something comes out of that. It's not always a smooth and easy process, but we get there to the end eventually. And I want to talk to you this morning um, basically as a bookend because I want to talk about why this time it's different. Now, it's again, not a brand new message, uh, but hopefully that doesn't mean it's old and tired either. I'm not one of these guys who goes around recycling messages. Um, and the reason I want to do that is a little bit of context. In 2011, I was ministering here in Australia and I was uh, at an Anglican church in the city and a guy came into the meeting and there was about 50 or 60 pastors, maybe even 70 pastors. And they were all you know, gathered together and they're wanting to hear about what God is doing and what's the word of the Lord and that sort of thing. And this guy comes in and he, he is himself an Anglican priest. And he said, uh, this morning as I was getting ready to come over here, a fellow from my church who's quite prophetic rang me. And he told me that that morning, or well, as he was speaking, it was this morning, but as I'm telling you now, it was that morning. Anyway, um, this individual had had this vision in prayer, and on it he'd seen, or in it he'd seen a map of Australia, and he'd seen these little dots, these little points of light. Now, by and large, they were around the perimeter of the country, which is not a surprise, because that's where virtually everybody lives in Australia. There are a few in the interior, but it's mostly empty there. You go up towards the Kimberleys, that's pretty empty. You go to Darwin, there is a little one city there, but in general, the Northern Territory is pretty empty. So there's just not a lot there, but around the edge, that's where the people are. So there were all these points of light, and as he looked at it, he realized they weren't just points of light, they were small flames that were growing bigger, and eventually they merged and it became, call it what you want, a ribbon of fire around the country. And so... I'd actually seen something like that in one of my prayer times, so that encouraged me. But what I didn't have that this pastor told me his parishioner had seen was written across the map as he was looking at this ribbon of fire once it had grown into that as it went around the country, 2014. He said, what do you think that means? I said, well, I think it means we've got about three years to get ready. So... You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last three years in your country trying to talk about getting ready and how we, how we move to the place where we're ready to receive something like that. Because, you know, harvest is a strange thing. If you don't have silos ready for the crop, you can have great harvest, but you won't have anything to show for it. And not only that, but if you get a bumper crop, if you get a really good harvest, you know what happens when people get come into a sudden surfeit of money? They go out and buy Cadillacs or BMWs or new houses or boats or you know they they aren't always good stewards of the excess that comes in. And so I I got to thinking about all of that. And so with that as kind of a backdrop, I want to talk about 2014 because 2014 is well this is the year and we're basically at the end of the year. Now I've seen a lot of points of light lit on fire around this country in my travels. I could name churches from extreme far north Queensland all the way down the east coast, come around the bottom, don't forget Tasmania, grow two heads before you go there, I know the joke, 
head across South Australia, go even into the funny little cow towns and mining, you know, mining stations that are out there, go across the Great Southern Bight, come through the southern part of Australia, but it, now you're in the western state, you know, go up through Esperance and Albany and you come up through Bunbury and Bustleton and, you know, you keep heading north, you go through Perth, you get up to Geraldton and even points beyond. I mean, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, okay? I, I know your country. I've traveled it thinking somehow if this, is, if this vision has real meaning, then we have to somehow latch onto that and try to make that happen. I tried to encourage people to help me do it, and some people came along, but in a lot of cases, I think I was you know, just a, a voice crying in the wilderness. But here's something that I learned in all that. This time, it really is different. So I'm calling it the message, this time it's different. And you know, in the year 2000, there was an internet bubble, and the world was going crazy with high-technology stocks and in the United States, the NASDAQ, which is our technology index, went to 5,000. It's creeping its way back up there. But eventually, the bubble burst. And along the way, you know, companies were going public with no revenue and billion-dollar valuations. People said, this time, it's different. And later on, we had a real estate bubble in the United States. It was kind of at the front end of the global financial crisis. Some would argue it caused the global financial crisis. But in any way, in any case, people were getting loans. They had no income. They had nothing to put down on a house, but they were being given million-dollar homes with loans to go with it. And somehow they were expected that they would make those payments and it would all be good. And so people said, this time it's different. And so, you know, you live long enough, you hear this phrase a lot, this time it's different. And we have our own version of that in the church. You know, there's going to be the one true end time, arch apostolic visitation. And it will come down. It'll be like the ninth emanation of Enoch from the heavens. You know, you get all these things people say, and people say, this time it's different. And after a while, you've heard that. You go, to, you go through the cycle a couple times, and you go, well, I'm not sure. Because here's the thing. In the dot-com bubble in 2000, it wasn't different. It crashed and burned. The real estate bubble in 2008, it crashed and burned. It really wasn't different. And there are a lot of people who might want to say, well, what God is doing it really isn't different. This is just more of the same ho-hum. Why should we get all excited? Why should we expect anything to change in our lives, in our churches, in, our, in, in anything really? And so in that, the people of God fall into a way of thinking that becomes almost the seeds of its own destruction. Does that make sense? So I want to I think about this question of, is it really different this time? And I've already told you the answer. I think it is different and I'll tell you why, by looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And here's what we have in Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, excuse me, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is not only the word of the Lord, it's an extraordinary passage of scripture. And part of what makes it extraordinary is that it's rooted in history. There's so much of what's happening in Christianity right now, 2014, November 2014, November 20, what are we, 3rd? 2014. That is ahistorical. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's somehow emotional or it's rooted in teachings that don't you know, connect us to history, but God is a God of history. When God moves, he moves in space and time. There's a groundedness and a reality to the things that God does. And in this passage, Luke tells us it was in the 15th year of Tiberius, who was the Caesar who succeeded Augustus, the one who gave the tax poll that caused Jesus and Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem on the night that he was born. It was in the 15th year of Tiberius who came to power in the year 14 AD. We know this happened, this event right here that we just read about, 29 AD is when it happened. It's anchored in space and time. And not only that, in case you had a question about when did God do this thing? Well, it happened when Pontius Pilate was the was the governor of Judea. He was the, he was the senior Roman leader over this conquered province that had been subjugated a hundred years before by Roman legions. And as the Romans would do, they divided it into four pieces. And over each of the fourths, they gave a tetrarch. Tetra being the word for four in Greek, ark being the word for ruler, the ruler of a fourth. And so in case you wondered, when was this? Well, it was when Herod was the fourth ruler of Galilee. And his brother Philip, who was a more crafty and insidious individual, he was tetrarch of both Iturea and Trachonitis. He had two-fourths, not just one. And we have this man named Licinius, who was the tetrarch of Abilene. And oh, just in case you're wondering how this tracks to the Jewish calendar, this is during the time of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas were serving side by side as high priests. 
Now, Caiaphas was officially the, the high priest, but that was only because Annas had had the temerity to rise up against none other than Tiberius Caesar, who deposed him as the high priest. But of course, it being a Jewish family, no son-in-law was going to tell his father-in-law, I don't need you anymore. So Annas still had a great deal of control over what went on, even though Caiaphas held the title. Now that's all by way of background, but it gives you texture. It gives you richness to it. It helps you understand a bit of the times because, as I said, when God moves, he moves in a way that is historical. There's a lot of things that are being said just now in the body of Christ. And all I know is I want reality. I want to see God move in tangible, real ways. I'm not all that interested in going to galaxies. I'm not all that interested in the emanations that I'm hearing about. But what I am interested in and seeing is seeing a move of God even in a time of oppression, even in a time of difficulty, even in a time of corrupt leaders and self-serving religious officials. That's what I'm interested in seeing. And this time it's different because, well, we're coming back around to a time like that one. We've seen a lot of false starts along the way, but I don't think that's what God has in mind for your country. So it tells us that during the time that all of these men had staked their claims, their, their way of life, their, how they're getting their piece of the pie is the way we would say it in the United States. During all this time, the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John. Not just any John, John the son of Zechariah. John the miraculous son, the one who should have never been born because his mother was barren. John, the one who had been prophesied, not just by somebody who rocked up at church, but by an angel who had appeared to his father when he was on priestly duty. This John, this John was in the wilderness. Why? Because he'd kind of forsaken. He was, he was, he was over all of it. He'd, he'd, he'd seen enough in his early years. He's at this point in time about 29 or 30 years old. He and Jesus are six months apart in age, and they're cousins. He'd seen enough. He's withdrawn. He's gone out into the wilderness. He says, I'm done with the city. I'm done with the hustle bustle. I'm done with chasing riches. I'm done with trying to be, you know, whoever it is I'm supposed to be. I'm just going to go seek God in the wilderness. And in that, the word of God came to him in the desert. The Bible tells us that John lived in the desert until the time of his public appearing. That's in Luke 1.80. And that's why I'm I'm emphasizing this so much. He may have been part of a, of a group of Jews known as the Essenes who were ascetic. They'd spent a lot of time fasting and, you know, they had their own way of life. But in any case, the word of God came to John. Now, often God's word, often God's calling, God's commissioning will follow a time of isolation, maybe a time of hardship, perhaps even for years. John had been living in the desert for a while. We don't know exactly when he left home. Maybe he was a you know, 15-year-old, maybe he was 18. People left home earlier in those days, but they tended to stay around their families. John withdrew from all that. He'd been in the desert for sure at least 10 years, maybe longer. But this thing had started to stir in him because he had, a, he had something special on him. You know, the people of God in this land have something special on them. By definition, you are a remnant. You are a remnant for this reason. Less than a million people in your country are in church this morning. Less than one million people. You are a nation of 24.2 million people, according to your last census. It's probably gone up since then because babies are born and immigrants come in, but that's the last official stake in the ground. 
That means you are less than 5% that you're sitting here on this Sunday morning listening. That makes you special. That means there's something of the hand of God on you. Something God caused you to get out of bed and be drawn to come and worship God this morning. And you are part of a remnant, but you might not see the remnant because down the road there's some church here and down the road there's some church there. But together you represent at most about 600,000 people in this country who are, in fact, after the ways of God. The rest of them, well, they're serving Buddha or Allah or money or their jet ski or their bed or their television set or whatever. They're watching footy. You know, they, they got drunk last night and they're still sleeping it off. Whatever, you're a remnant. You're like John the Baptist. What, what God is doing here, I'm, I'm, I'm extracting from John and I'm generalizing it to you. This is like a John the Baptist generation that's been raised up. And this kind of calling, it follows a period of hardship. It might take years. God's never in a hurry. God wants the right product. And, you know, God knows the heartbreak of investing years into somebody's life only to see them, you know, decide in the end that they're going to go in a different direction as well. Sometimes we have those heartbreaks. But anyway, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. This sounds like something out of the Old Testament, and it's intended to. Because in the Old Testament, when the word of the Lord would come to someone, they could point to it. They could say, this was where I was. This was the time that it happened. Isaiah was in the temple. Moses saw a burning bush. Amos was tending sycamore fig trees, and the word of God came to him and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. And so what this is telling us is, this is in the same vein as when the Lord would summon prophets after the Old Testament order, and when God's word comes, to a man or to a people, it is always obvious. It is always obvious. You can't deny it. It's, it's, it's as clear as the nose on your face. Usually the recipient can pinpoint the time and the place. Now, about a generation ago, there was a young man in, in my part of the world, Southern California, by name Lonnie Frisbee. You probably have never heard of Lonnie Frisbee. He was a hippie, and he was an artist, and... He was born again by hook and by crook. And one day he went out to the deserts east of California, not unlike John who had been out in the desert. And he went into this box canyon. A box canyon has one way in and one way out. And he went into this box canyon and he was there and he was praying. But he wasn't praying like this. Lonnie was an unusual individual. And so he walks into this box canyon and there's 10-story high canyon walls all around him, so more or less 10 meters high, more or less, but whatever. He's in this canyon, and he calls out, and he says, God, if you're really real, reveal yourself to me. And as he does this, the canyon fills up with multicolored layers of light, reds and blues and yellows and greens, and he strips off all of his clothes like Saul had done in the Old Testament, and he lies on the desert floor for three days in a, in a trance, in a prophetic ecstasy, prophesying. And at the end of three days, he gets up and puts on his clothes. That's good. And he heads into Los Angeles, where he proceeded to lead 80,000 people a month to the Lord. That's what it's like when the word of the Lord comes to you. Now, it may not be that dramatic, 
But Lonnie was willing to live on the edge. He was a young man. As you age, maybe you aren't as willing to live out on the edge. But in any case, Lonnie could pinpoint the time, the place, the date where the word of the Lord came to him. Do you know when the word of the Lord came to you? People of Australia, the Lord is calling to you. He's been calling, but has the word of the Lord come to you or have your ears been stopped up? Because, you know, there is also the possibility. This is what the prophets also say. Make the heart of this people hard so that though hearing they may not hear so that seeing they may not perceive and this is why even jesus said for him who has ears to hear let him hear people of australia have you heard the word of the lord the davar yahweh the word of god came into john and became enfleshed in him people of australia god wants to incarnate the word of god in you he is looking to summon a people that he can use in a time like this that is what he is about. Now John's summons was this one, Luke 3, 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine? This would be about the most offensive thing you could possibly do. Why? Because baptism was something that converts did. It was how they came into the household of Judaism. And he went to all the Jews in all the region around the Jordan, and he said, you need to be baptized. What do you mean I need to be baptized? I'm already a Jew. What was John saying? You need to be born again. You may think you're a Jew, but you need to come in like a new convert. You may have been walking in the tradition of the Jewish faith for years, decades, centuries in your family maybe. You still need to have it level set once again. You need to be baptized. And that's why this is according to the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Get your hearts ready. The Lord's coming. Get your hearts ready. The Lord's coming. Every valley is going to be filled in. Every deep crevice, every area of hurt, every area of difficulty. Now, in my country, we have something you don't have here. We call it black timber. You go into the Rocky Mountains, those mountains at their, at their highest point are nearly 15,000 feet. So you, you, you go up a ways. 15,000 feet is almost three miles high. You, you look down some of these canyons, and as you look down the canyons, those are valleys. They're deep, big valleys. And in them, you'll see patches of black timber. These are trees where the light never penetrates below the canopy. And so it's called black timber. And you know what hides in black timber? All kinds of stuff hides in black timber. This is why valleys have to be lifted up, so that what's hiding in the black timber gets brought into the light. What is that referring to? All the areas of hiddenness in your life. All the areas where... You might know with your head what God wants, but in your heart it hasn't connected. Or your obedience has been incomplete. Or something hasn't quite connected. And you, you, you want it, but you don't know how to get it. And so God says, well, let me help you with that. <laughs> every valley will be lifted up. And not only that, every mountain and hill will be made low because there are also those people who are so filled with pride that they build their house on the top of every high ridge so they can have the view and show everybody who they are. So this is dealing with people who are downcast, they're in the black timber, and those who are high and lofty, 
everybody in between, every valley is going to be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. And that which is crooked, that which is unable to be straightened, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet says, can that which is crooked be straightened? If you think of a coat hanger, remember those old wire coat hangers? Nowadays, everyone's using plastic ones. But in the old days, way back in the day, people would use coat hangers that had this twisted piece, you know, right at the top where the hook went over the bar. And if you ever tried to unhook a coat hanger and un untwirl it, you know, you could bend it and you could sort of make it straight, but you'd never get all those curly cue thingies out, and even the, the turns that went around like that, even those were pretty hard to get absolutely straight. But the crooked things that can't be made straight, they're going to be made straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. Now, the rough places, this is referring to areas where there'd be stones about so big, and they'd be in the path. So, you know, every step you'd take, you'd be, you know, like walking on ball bearings. But all of that is going to get cleaned out and then all flesh is going to see the salvation of God. This will be something that, that will break in. So John is picking up some themes out of Isaiah, something that's reaching back to a time in history where the great prophets were alive. And John's summons was this one. It was a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of life. This was not status quo. This was not business as usual. Now, as I already said, these are the things that, that John was speaking of, but that's because of this. Visitation is always preceded by preparation. Visitation is always preceded by preparation. Now, I was talking to Bill Johnson a couple of years ago. I was up in Reading, and I was in his office, and we were, we were just talking about a few things, catching up. And uh, I said to him, you know, the thing I can't quite figure out is, is it bad enough yet? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, the only time God ever moves is when the people of God get desperate. And the only time the people of God get desperate is when they get shaken out of their complacency because things have gotten bad around them, whether through idolatry, violence in the streets, whatever it may be. We have a whole book called the Bible that gives us history of when those moves of God have occurred. But this much we know, it always happens in times of difficulty. And I said, I don't know if it's bad enough yet. But I'll tell you this, I think it's gotten bad enough yet. I think it has. I think it's now gotten bad enough yet. Just this week, we had a prayer service in the United States. Now, that's not Australia, but, you know, we and you are so closely linked in so many ways that, you know, it's all kind of flowing in both directions all the time anyway. We had a prayer service in the National Cathedral of the United States in Washington, D.C., in which a Muslim imam was invited to... Well, it was supposed to be an interfaith service of dialogue and reconciliation. But when the Muslim imam got up, he, he, he uttered the shahada. That's the call to Muslim prayer. And all the Muslims in the place bowed down towards Mecca. And before they said the conventional shahada, they said, we disavow that there is any son of God and that, there is, and that any who proclaim to be such are false prophets. Well, how about that in a Christian cathedral? One could ask, why are, why are Muslims praying in a Christian cathedral? But that would be an example of where things are headed. You, by the way, have identically the same kinds of phenomena going on here in Australia. I'm just using that one because it's top of the news. It's like a two-day-old story. 
And a Christian woman stood up as this was about to happen. She said, this is a Christian cathedral. The security escorted her out of the building. Now, imagine if Christians had tried to go and pray in a mosque, what that would engender. Can you say global jihad? Oh, we're in one of those. Is it bad enough yet? How about how we've redefined marriage? It's an all but done deal. I mean, it's, there's pockets of resistance, but they're taking care of those. Is it bad enough yet? How about taking everything that looks anything like the Christian heritage of the entire West of Western civilization, whether Australia, England, America, Canada, Europe, I don't care, take it all out of the schools, take it all out of government, completely strip it away, suppress it, and then say anything that's Christian is bigoted and pick your favorite, homophobic, Buddhophobic, Hinduphobic, Islamophobic, but we're going to homogenize it all into one world religion that has everybody's doing the same thing. Is it bad enough yet? I think it's bad enough yet. A lot's changed even in the couple of years since I first started thinking about this message, and a lot's changed since I got that word about 2014. If you think I'm trying to wake you up, I am. It's easy to fall into a stupor. It's easy to be lulled into complacency with soccer games and footy matches and going out to nice dinners and just trying to get to work and back and making the mortgage payment and all the rest of it. But people of God, something's going on around you. Do you realize how late the hour is? Note that I am not prophesying the second coming of Christ. That'll happen whenever it happens. This time it's different. This time it's global. This time every single pillar of everything that we have known as society is under siege. And if the, if the walls haven't been breached yet on this pillar, they've been breached on this pillar. It is a, it is a multifaceted war, and the church of God has been standing by going, let's go to heaven and go to the galaxies. This time it's different. Visitation is always preceded by preparation. The Lord's been calling his people to a time of preparation for several years, and now the drumbeats are getting louder and more insistent and more regularly timed. When does God raise up a John the Baptist? Well, the same time he would raise up an Elijah at a time when the worship of Yahweh in ancient Israel was being completely subverted and turned into a syncretistic mush that included Baal and Ashtoreth, sexual immorality, all of the gods of the nations all around. God raised up an Elijah. And that's the same time that he raised up John the Baptist, who, by the way, Jesus said, is the Elijah who was to come if you have ears to hear. If you don't have ears to hear, you would have missed that one. You would have just said John's another prophet. But this is how Jesus viewed John's ministry. So when does God raise up Elijah's? When does God raise up John's? Well, he does it in times like this. And what do they look like when they arise? Number one, they look pretty nonconformist. They don't roll over for the status quo. They don't go along with what everybody else is saying you need to believe. That, by the way, would generally be the blather that comes out from the media. But it might be coming from other sources, too. They may be labeled as inflexible. They see things as too black and white. Their standards are too strict. They call people to back to the ways of God, though, and they're not willing to compromise on that. 
Now, this was John's message as he went preaching. It was a nice, friendly Sunday morning message that was seeker-friendly. He came around and he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that going to get you? Woo! Why does he say that? Because what he's telling the people of God is they'd gotten to a place where their spirituality was so bankrupt, so moribund, that when he looked at them, it was like a, a ball of snakes. That's what a brood of vipers is. Now, when snakes are born and they're babies, they ball up for warmth. And vipers, whether they're little tiny ones or big ones, they're equally poisonous. The only thing that varies is how much poison do they have in their mouth because a little mouth can't hold as much as a big mouth because all the poison is held in sacks up in the mouth, right? So what he's saying is, you guys are all like a, a bunch of vipers. You've got poison in you. And, you know, when, when one snake crawls out of the ball, we might chop the head off the snake, but then another one comes along. There's so many snakes tangled up in snakes, it's time to clean it all out. That's what John was saying to the people of God. Get rid of the snake balls. Reminds me of Father Rick Thomas. He's a Catholic priest in San Antonio, Texas. He goes across the border into Mexico. He does ministry there. Then he comes back across the border into the United States. I saw Father Rick Thomas in an interview some years ago. He was talking about the work they were doing. And they asked him, you know, why are you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living what you're living? And he said, in his, in his very cholo accent, he said, because you cannot preach the good news and be the bad news. That's what it means to get rid of the snake balls. Here's John's summons. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And what's he saying? He's saying, don't rely on your, on your religious credentials. What your grandparents or your parents did, even if they were Christians, doesn't matter. That was then. This is now. In fact, even you, what you did 10 years ago, two years ago, six months ago, in the end, it doesn't really matter. What are you walking in now? What are you living in now? Because faith comes by hearing in the now, not by what you heard then. That's how these things roll. Don't say, I went to visit the Toronto outpouring 20 years ago, or I visited Kansas City, or the Vineyard Anaheim, or the Brownsville outpouring, the Florida outpouring. None of that stuff matters in the here and now. Because what God is calling for is a move now that looks different. And God is summoning his people into congruence. What is congruence? It's when lives line up with profession and profession lines up with the standards that God has in his word. One of the big concerns I have as I travel and, and see the church in the world right now is there's, there's almost no biblical literacy left in the church. And if there's no biblical literacy in the church, what in the world is society got? They've got nothing at all. Is it any wonder that literally the entire thrust of the civilization that we inherited from our parents and grandparents has changed in one generation? The moorings have been cut out from underneath it. And congruence means getting that alignment going. Well, on that topic of congruence, some years ago, John Wimber was talking to a friend of mine in the church at Anaheim, the vineyard Anaheim. You know, the big mothership, the one that everybody wanted to go to back in the day when it was the place to go to. 
And he was talking to this friend of mine, and he goes, you know, your problem isn't that you aren't saved. Because this person was a believer. But they had some issues. They had a messy life. He said, your problem isn't that you aren't saved, it's that you don't live like it. And so that's what John's driving into with all this talk about snake balls and fleeing from the wrath to come. And what, what, the, Lord, what the Lord has in mind is fruit. John goes on, he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, you know, a lot of preachers have used this to kind of dangle people over hell on a string. And I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm just saying, why don't we just take a look and see if we've got fruit coming up on the trees that we are. And if the fruit is deficient, then let's prune the tree so we can get some fruit. And forget about dangling people over hell on a string. It's not that I don't believe in hell. It's just that's not the focus of this passage. So as John's preaching all of this, the crowds start to say, what does that mean for us? How do we live that out? That's all well and good, John, but what am I supposed to do with that? You might be thinking the same thing right now. So we get three groups of people that approach him, and he has three different answers. It's similar but different in each of the three. First case, the crowds, this is the hoi polloi, this is every man, the working class. He answers them and says, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. All right, what's he saying? Well, if you've got two jackets, two coats, you've got a surfeit, a surfeit you've got abundance, share it with those who don't have abundance. Hmm, okay. So what's he doing? He's laying his finger on a heart issue of greed and of lack of love for your brother or sister who you see in need but you go, yeah, be warmed and filled, as James so aptly put it in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. There, there is that tendency that people have to just sort of close their eye. I'm not looking. I don't see that. I can't be bothered. I'm too busy. Sorry. Good on you, mate. Bless you. But there's nothing substantive. So John goes, here's where the rubber meets the road. Don't let your greed and your attachment to your belongings stop you from helping those that are around you who have a material need. Second group of people up is the tax collectors. They come up and they say, well, teacher, what shall we do? Now, these tax collectors, these are really nasty people. I mean, nobody likes tax collectors, not in my country and not in yours. But here's the thing. In those days, to be a tax collector meant you had betrayed your entire nation and aligned with the Roman overlords. And you basically were the face of the Roman government to oppress and to control and put down all of the people of God in this case. Now, if it were Germany, it wouldn't have been the people of God. It would have just been the Germanic tribes. But anyway, this is how Rome kept revenue flowing in. So they come in, they conquer you, then they take all the money out of your pockets to pay for the mechanism that keeps you enslaved. And this is why being a tax collector was really, really lowbrow work. But you could get rich doing it because the Romans would say, you, you've got a medallion to collect taxes. You pay us this much every month, and if you can collect that much, that's all for you. Keep it for yourself. So it was a great gig for somebody who was entrepreneurial. And so these tax collectors come, they say, well, what about us? What shall we do? And John says this, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Oh, you mean we can only collect that much? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, well, that's not so good. Yeah, that's right. 
because now you're getting out of the oppression game. So what's the basic message? Don't abuse your office. Now, how bad can this get? Well, here's how bad it can get. In my country, I won't use yours, lest you think I'm pointing fingers, but in my country, not far from me, there's a little tiny city called Bell, California. It's a suburb of Los Angeles. It's a nondescript working-class city. And the average income in Bell, California is $32,000 a year. Well, in the city of Bell, California, there was a mayor. He was making $850,000 a year. Not only was he making $850,000 a year, but he had a contract that said that when he left office, he would get a pension that tripled his rate of pay for the rest of his life. He also had a whole city council that worked with him, and each of them was making $450,000 a year on a city where the average income was $32,000 a year. Does that strike you as abusive and problematic? Okay, that is what happens to a society that forgets the ways of God. I'm telling you an American story, but I know of a few here in Australia that are nearly as egregious. I'll just leave it at that and not name names. But don't abuse your office. Whatever job you have, whatever role God has put you in in society, cut out the pride. Get rid of the avarice. Don't abuse others. This is what's at the heart of what John is saying. As you can see, this has great applicability to our day. The third group up are the soldiers. Now, soldiers, this is like the worst of it all. These are the ones who conquered the Holy Land, except that it happened 100 years before. So these are not the exact guys, but they're in the same role. And soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Now, why would he give them that instruction? Well, because here's what soldiers did. Soldiers used false accusation all the time. They would come up and they'd say, you, sir, you didn't pay your taxes to the friendly tax collector. You say, oh, yeah, here, here's my receipt. See, I paid my taxes. You'd say, thank you very much. I don't see any receipt. <laughs> Pay up. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't have any more money. I, I gave it all to the tax collector. Oh, oh, is that your daughter back there? We'll be happy to take her down to the barracks in payment. That's how the Roman soldiers operated. This is, this is extortion. This is greed. It's false witness. It's lying. It's misuse of the legal system. Hmm. Does anyone know anywhere where that might be going on? Possibly. Maybe. I do. So all of these things play very much into the way our society is looking more and more and more. This is why this time it needs to be different. It's not enough just to have a big Holy Ghost hoedown. Can I say that here and not have it? Okay. We use that term in the U.S. It doesn't mean anything bad, but I thought ho, that might not translate well. So it's, it's not enough just to have a Holy Ghost hoedown and have people falling and all that. I mean, praise God when the Lord moves. I'm, everyone knows I'm a Holy Spirit guy. I love healing. I love deliverance. I love prophecy. I love all that stuff. But I see these things as tools to effect transformation of societies, and we have to take those tools and deploy them. God gave them to us for that reason, not just so it stays in whatever we call the church. In this case, it's a school MPR, multipurpose room. And, you know, we have our little Holy Ghost experience. And so John is, John is calling all segments of society to something much greater than what they 
have been in. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation, they're hearing all this and they're like, whoa, what is this all about? And they start going, you know, maybe this guy's more than a prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. And John says, listen, <laughs> you think I'm the Messiah? I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. If you think I'm the Messiah, you just wait. I'm baptizing you with water. Wait till the fire comes down. Then it's really going to happen because everything that's wrong is going to burn. And I'm not talking hellfire right now. I'm talking just God will burn up all that dross in lives. He's going to baptize you in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat, that which is valuable, which is salvageable, which is edible, nutritious, worthy. He'll gather that into his barn. But the chaff, that which is worth less, that will simply be burned up with a fire that can't go out. It's unquenchable. Now, John's ministry was a preparation ministry. And as I already said, it humbled all, everybody, because he was preaching a proselyte's lot to the people of his day who thought they stood above that. Now, what does it mean when he says he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire? Well, I've kind of given a little bit of a sense of that, but, you know, we know that Jesus said you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And then he said, also, remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. So there is power in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we need that in order to function in, the, in what God has in mind. But he says you'll be baptized in fire as well. The Greek word for fire is puros, or the way we would say it in America, puros, and it's the word we get purification from, or sanctification. And so why is this time different? Why is this move of God different from the one that you may have participated in 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or if you got saved in the Jesus people 30 years ago or 40 years ago if you're old enough? Probably not this church, though. This is a younger church. Why is this move different? Because in previous moves of God, it was either all signs and wonders and glitz and Holy Ghost blowout, but there was very little holiness. I can tell you, I've been through those revivals, and they collapsed under their own weight of sin that was never really addressed. And I don't just mean, you know, sin in the camp, although there was plenty of that too. I'm talking about the lives that didn't find the change and the fundamental transformation that they really needed. So all the great signs and wonders, in a way, came to nothing. On the other hand, there have been plenty of moves of God that became all about holiness, but there was no real power that affected society, that grabbed a hold of people. And the biggest problem with that is those all turned to legalism. Well, nobody likes legalism either. <laughs> He's waving his hand. You were through one of those. All right, so legalism... That's like, you know, everybody goes, ew, yuck, I don't like legalism, forget that. So then people throw off whatever benefit may have been in the move of God. And this time it's different for this reason. God is aligning power, these gifts, anointings, visitations, whatever, with purity and holiness, cleaning out, sanctification, all the rest of it, without the sanctimoniousness that has taken things off the rails and without the foolishness that has destroyed previous powerful moves of God. That's why this time is different. In the year 2000, they said, this time it's different. It really wasn't different. The dot-com bubble came and went because you can't take companies public with billion-dollar valuations on no revenue. 
Well, they did it, but it didn't work, didn't last. All the stocks cratered, the bubble ended. In 2008, they were underwriting mortgages for people who shouldn't have had mortgages, giving them money they shouldn't have had. They said, oh, well, it doesn't matter because real estate always goes up. Well, real estate doesn't always go up. Real estate cratered. Everybody lost a lot of money. The world is still recovering from the hangover of that one, although I, I think we're getting close to the end of it. This time it's different, though. This isn't the dot-com bubble. This isn't the real estate bubble. This time it's different because God is calling for a move of God in which he will pour out power, fresh fire, new anointing, with greater ability for healing, more clarity in the prophetic, something that's transferable, something that the people of God can and will, if they will rise up, utilize in their communities, in their schools, in their businesses, in their jobs, in wherever they find themselves, they become the salt and light that they're meant to be, and the hand of God is with them in all that they do. What's an example of that? Well, one example, I've got several here in my notes, but one example that I always put to smile on my face. I have a friend, and he never had any power in his life, but he was an evangelist. This guy preached and preached and preached, and over the course of his life, he led a lot of people to the Lord. But the problem was, nearly all of them, he'd lead them to the Lord, and sometimes within an hour, they'd be back in the bar drinking. You know, they prayed the prayer, but they didn't really have any transformation in their life. Well, this guy got hit with the power of God during the time of, you know, that the Lord was moving and pouring out, and he was a missionary in Austria. That's a pretty hard place to be a missionary. It's even harder than Australia. But anyway, he was a missionary in Austria, and he, he went back, and he rounded up about 300 people over a, roughly a month or so um, that he had previously led to the Lord, but then they'd fallen away and backslidden. And he ended up praying with all of them, and whether they had bondage or demons or whatever they had, things started happening. And suddenly he had a church on his hands because these people now were sticking with the faith. And they're coming out of all the stuff they're in. That'll do. That, that's a, not a bad start, especially in a place like Austria. You know, go from zip to 300 in a church. I don't, think there are, I don't think there are many churches in the whole country that have 300 people in them. So that's a, that's a snapshot of what power and fire or the power of God might look like. But then I talked about fire. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit representing power. He'll, rep, he'll baptize you with fire representing this purification and sanctification. What does that look like? Well... You know, there was a man in a church that I was visiting, and he and his wife had a real long history in that church. And over the course of several years, they'd managed to offend every single person in the church because they were critical and obnoxious and offensive, and they just did all the wrong things all the time. And the Lord visited them and fell on them. And they started going around to every person in the church. They said, you know, I realize I was a... I actually don't think he used the word jerk. I think he used something a little stronger, but I won't use it on Sunday morning. You could imagine what that word might have been, though. But he owned it, and so did his wife as they went around and they talked to people. Would you please forgive me? Who are you? You look like that other guy. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I need you to forgive me because I've been that guy. Okay. Would you forgive me? I, I've been that guy. I've offended and harmed you. I've damaged your reputation. Yeah, sure. Who are you anyway? You look like the guy I used to know, but you don't sound like the guy I used to know. Would you forgive me? He went around to every person in this church of 350 people. It took him quite a while to do it. He took them all out to dinner, bought them dinners, just as a way of saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Do you know what happened? 
that entire church was transformed because people realized, oh, this is actually about something even deeper than we had realized because they were seeing a life change that's now reflecting the gospel. I'm all for signs and wonders, but I'm also for lives that conform to what a real life looks like. And that's why I'm saying this time it's different because God's calling for both power, signs and wonders, visitations, prophecy, angels, all of it, and he's calling for purity, sanctity of life, Christian holiness, living in a manner that people look at it and they go, that right there, I want to imitate that. And for way too long, these two have been separated. This time it's different because God is calling the two together. John said this, his winnowing fork is already in his hand. He's holding it, and he plans to clear the threshing floor. He's going to gather wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn up chaff with unquenchable fire. I love the word unquenchable. In Greek, the word unquenchable is asbestos. That needs no translation. This is what's about to happen. This is what God purposes to do in Australia. It's time to wake up. The hour is late. 2014 is done. There's a lot of points of light that are lit, but they haven't yet fully merged. The ribbon of fire, I assume, will come into the fore. Well, 2015 would be a good time. Maybe it'll be 2016, but things are already moving. Things are underway. The Lord is sending people into this country. Never mind Ken Fish. No one's ever heard of Ken Fish. Well, you have, but other than you, no one's ever heard of me. But the Lord's sending his biggest and best names into this country. Bill Johnson's been here twice this year. Randy Clark's coming in December to go to Sydney. And he's been in Australia, I think, two other times already this year. Heidi Baker's been here. Roland Baker's been here. You just go down the list of the who's who in the zoo, whether it's Jeff Jansen or anybody else. Everybody's pouring into Australia. Why? Because the hour is time now. Fires are being lit so they can all merge into that ribbon, ribbon of fire that goes all around the country of Australia. You say, well, why would God care so much about this nation? Because there are three prophecies that were given. I talked about this the last time I was here, so I don't need to recapitulate them all. But I will just say this. God has had a destiny on this land and this region of the world since basically it was discovered by the Western world in the form of a Portuguese sea captain by the name of Pedro Fernando de Quiros with his famous Southland of the Holy Spirit prophecy. And other big hitters like Smith Wigglesworth and William Seymour have prophesied in a similar vein. Why is God doing all this? Because the Lord has need of Australia. The world is waiting for you. America is waiting for you. I know you guys often look to us. Well, we're going to start looking to you. We need Aussie leadership in this move of God that's coming, coming into the fore. Now, it'll take a little time to you know, have it be fully enfleshed. And a lot of times, the big mistake the people of God make is this one. They despise small beginnings. That's why the Bible says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Don't make the mistake of despising it because it starts small, doesn't quite look like the fully baked thing. If it were fully baked, you wouldn't be ready for it anyway. Because this season of preparation, it's still going on. It's still underway. But I'm telling you, something is happening. And this is the time where the Lord wants very much to release his spirit on this land so he can summon his people so he can have his way. This time, it's different. 
don't miss the train in the move of God that he's doing in your country. Amen?